Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week we're talking about student housing, particularly the recent growth in high-rise towers near the University of Arizona and downtown Tucson. Residents of neighborhoods around campus say they bear the brunt of impacts from student housing developments, including increased traffic, reduced housing stock, noise, and in some cases, harassment. We'll hear from them and the university about some of the impacts from those developments and ways to minimize them in the future. The Islamic Center of Tucson has been next to the University of Arizona since the early 1990s. It's in the same city block where developers have built several multi-story student housing complexes in recent years. In August, the Islamic Center was once again targeted by residents of the adjacent towers. The harassment included some residents throwing glass bottles and alcohol down onto the center. Outreach Director Lynn Harani joined us to talk about the ongoing problem. She says the times have changed. I remember um, when my children were young, they used to we used to go to the to the center down there, and, and there was it was all one level uh, buildings around it. And I left Tucson and was in Yuma for a while. And when I came back, I was very surprised at the drastic change in the um, the area. At that time, I think uh, Sol Iluna had just been um, built. How have those new towers and the ones that have followed, because Sol and Luna are not the only ones now, changed life at the Islamic Center? Um, well, the change was pretty drastic, uh, pretty quickly. One of the th- one of the design features of the group dwellings that were first put up was that they have balconies, and so um, to the north side of our lot we have a parking lot, and in that lot we 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 let our children play, uh, you know, for breaks at Sunday school, for recess, and there is a basketball court with a hoop. And so um, as soon as the buildings were were erected and students were coming in, we were having items thrown into the parking lot, uh, bottles being thrown, glass, shards of glass were just all over the parking lot. So we, we called the police. The police came and there was lots of investigations. And then eventually... The police gave us a really good camera system so we could find out who was throwing what. And it was just a a, a, a very, very painful growing pain and a learning curve to um, work with the police department, work with the management of the buildings to try and, and you know, enforce, enforce some rules for the for the students that were living in these group dwellings. And um, they implemented a zero tolerance and they were evicting uh, students. But what we're finding is that every, the beginning of every academic year, there's always issues until the students realize that, you know, we're going to catch them because of the, the high resolution cameras. We can pinpoint exactly what is being thrown from, from which room, basically. When the management of these these student housing towers started evicting people, I'm sure you were glad there was some sort of remedy, but was eviction what you all were looking for? Well, no. Nobody wants to see anybody 
get hurt or you know are affected by this we're trying to build community and build good relations but you know like i said this is a growing pain and evictions seem to be the thing that that deterred students from you know committing these criminal acts which it is a criminal act after students are evicted or caught do you ever hear from them I'm not sure if it's after they've been evicted, but we do get letters from students saying that, you know, they were, you know, they were just being stupid and they're, you know, very sorry and they're apologetic. And there was one incident where a shower rod came into our parking lot and it went through the rear window of a car and they were they, they just saying like, they were so sorry and it, it, would, it rolled off the balcony. And I think, to, to be honest, the, the real issue is the balconies. Now, because of all of the events that have happened, we have been able to bring in a city ordinance that bars uh, new buildings from having balconies. So that is something positive that's come out of such a negative situation. How receptive have city leaders been to the issues that the Islamic Center, the ICT, is facing? The city officials have just been wonderful. They have been very, very supportive. Um, Councilman Steve Kozicic from Ward 6, he has just um, been amazing. Anytime there's any issue, he's he wants us to mention you know, to tell him straight away, and then he writes letters and he advocates for us. And the mayor of Tucson is she's, Jonathan Rothschild. He's just been you know a great support for us. You mentioned when you were first at the Islamic Center, there was all this open space, and now we're talking about all these towers, and there are more towers going in. Will the Islamic Center eventually end up in in the middle of a canyon? And is that a sustainable place to be. Yes, I think we are going to be the center point of the you know, this little dome in the middle of all these buildings. But uh, the Islamic Center of Tucson is uh, a community organization. So the decision it, to move is not on a board of directors or a president or a chairman. It's the community that has to decide. And up to now, the community wants to stay where exactly where we are. There's a lot of emotional attachments to the area. Um, it's proximity to the U of A. You know, there's a lot of um, our community members who are students. So uh, as of now, the you know the community wants to stay where it is. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. That was Lynn Harani with the Tucson Islamic Center. After the recent incidents and the subsequent evictions of the students involved. The center held a community building event last week called Salam Tucson. Here are a few perspectives from community members who went to the event. So I'm actually a grad student here at the University of Arizona, pursuing a master's in medical pharmacology. Being around all these apartments, and it's a lot of college students, we are like a spiritual community, of course, and we ultimately just want people to be aware. We want to know that our values are respected, and at the same time, we want to show you that, you know, we can respect your values as well. We have a responsibility to our congregation to keep them safe, and so, all we are asking is just to maintain a peaceful neighborhood and for everybody just to respect each other. I was the president of MSA Muslim Student Association for a year. It's like a family to me. Like all my family is back home in Pakistan, but this is the family that I have here. 
there's this kind of demonization going on, and I think it's very important to build community with people of different identities. Uh, as a white man, that uh, you know, coming from a position of privilege, that it's really important to understand that privilege by recognizing when under, other groups are under attack. I'm an English teacher in Tucson, and I've heard about the vandalism that's happened to the Islamic Center of Tucson, and I, I wanted to show my support. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about Muslims in the U.S., a lot of stereotypes. So events like these help like, break those down. Those were the voices of Iman Sami, Maria Molina, Asiya Hamsazi, Martin Kraft, and Rosanna Sarza Canova. This week we're talking about the impacts from student housing near the University of Arizona campus, particularly the recent growth of high-rise apartments. Perhaps nowhere is the change more dramatic than at Park and Speedway, an area that was once marked by small businesses and single-story student homes. Pima County operates the Metropolitan Sewer System for Tucson. We asked Eric Wiedewilt, the Deputy Director for Planning and Engineering, how the new high-rise student apartments affect sewer operations. The biggest effect is these large buildings are being installed in residential areas where, in this area in particular, the sewers were built in 1916, and it was built for small residential houses. So bringing in 200, 300, 400 kids in one building really impacts the capacity of the sewer system that was not designed for these. So our challenge is to react in time to allow development to continue, but also to make sure none of that wastewater discharge leaves the sewer system. How do you do that, especially with an aging system, as you said, the one by the university, Maingate, 1916? Obviously, things have radically changed since then. Radically changed. We have worked on a capacity model for many years now. So we have a dynamic model of the sewer system to the best we understand it. And as each development comes in, we ask them to tell us how much capacity they're gonna be discharging. We'll run that through the model. If the model says there's capacity all the way downstream, we're good to go. If it shows that there's some concerns, then we start working with the individual developers on remedying those impacts if possible. Are there fees for developers, impact fees as they build these new high-rises and even the stuff going in downtown? From a wastewater perspective, there is a wastewater utility fee, and that's a one-time fee that the every development pays up front, and that's buying the capacity of the existing system, and that's part of paying for the capacity downstream. If the the wastewater system has to be upgraded because you run the model and you say, oh, that's not going to work. Is that passed on in some way to the developer, or is that something that we all just in our wastewater fees get covered? That's a great question. The answer is yes. <laughs> We've taken the policy that if an augmentation is necessary that serves a greater good, we'll put that into our capital improvement program and execute it if it meets the time frame of the developer. Often they want to get rolling in two or three years. If we can't do it in time, they have the option to do it themselves. If it's a localized impact, we're going to ask that the development pay for those improvements to allow them to connect to the system. Talking about the new student housing, we've got four, maybe five high-rise apartments in one city block. Is that density problematic? It's a challenge. We've made it work so far. Two of those developments have had to pay for their own augmentations. One was a one-block connection. Uh, the Aspire one had to pay for a longer sewer down Euclid in order to accommodate that high density. The hub, the four now, 
needs to connect north to Speedway because there's not enough capacity south. And we're hoping that we can find alternatives for each one of these to connect. How does stormwater um, play into all of this? And of course, as new developments go up, stormwater changes. That's a big unknown in planning for sewer capacity. We call it inflow and infiltration, and it's an unknown factor, but we try to quantify it and provide enough capacity in the pipe for that influent event. We're very proactive in trying to reduce it uh, through the manhole covers, through poor street designs where they may be running the whole culvert drainage over a sewer manhole, but we're uh, managing it, and so far we're able to stay ahead of that. Are other parts of the city, the county, seeing these big density increases that we're seeing around the university and near downtown? Nothing like we're seeing uh, right here in this corner. This is our Times Square of the city of Tucson, and it's very interesting to watch. It's exciting. Second to the downtown area redevelopment, which also has caused some challenges with capacity, but we've worked through those, and the result has been a great new addition to the downtown area. Oh, that's true. When you talk about downtown, we, we've been talking about student housing and apartments, but we have all these big hotels going in, which, from a sewage standpoint, is the same issue, I would guess. It's exactly the same challenge. Yep, we have the same limited capacity in those systems. No one expected downtown Tucson to have all those uh, hotels and high-rises going on, but uh, so far we've accommodated through our modeling and asking developers to do some small changes and adjustments to allow them to connect. That was Eric Wiedewilt with the Pima County Wastewater Reclamation Department. You're listening to The Buzz. This week we're talking about the impacts of the rise in student housing developments around the University of Arizona campus and downtown Tucson. Lisette DeMars is a member of the West University Neighborhood Association and represents Local First on the historic 4th Avenue Coalition. That coalition negotiated a community benefits agreement with the Union, a new student housing development going in at the intersection of 4th Avenue and 6th Street, the former site of the Flycatcher Bar. We talked with DeMars about how residents of the West University neighborhood and 4th Avenue feel about the rise of student housing developments and how they're working to integrate the new residents as part of the neighborhood. Some of it is cultural. We we sit on our porches and tell them, slow down, because they're not from here and they don't recognize that it's a neighborhood yet. Some of it really is traffic, both physical and car traffic um, in the neighborhood that really ramps up and without understanding or remembering that it's a neighborhood. Um, it takes a while for us to teach them to please drive slower, that there are kids walking to school. And I think as we've seen the housing increase, it's really been a motivating factor for our our neighborhood to get more involved in the types of developments. How do you teach students moving in? How do you interact with them so they understand it's a neighborhood? It's not just where they live from August to May. So actually, that was one of the conversations around the community benefits agreement with um, the flycatcher development was building in these quarterly community events that um, the owner of that building and the the agreement runs with the land, so this will hopefully go on forever, um, committed to facilitating in their space a community event once a quarter. And that allows our neighborhood to go in there and say, hey, did you know we're a dark sky community and here's what that means. And we want to connect you to some of the research um, by people who live in the neighborhood, by people who work at the university, um, by the the bar, Sky Bar, that does this great event Right, almost across the street. Exactly. Um, And that's just one example. But another thing that we talked about during that um, negotiation 
negotiation process was moving the rents from nine-month leases to 12-month leases because when people leave for the summertime, the community changes. And so if you're a owner of a business on 4th Avenue or if you're a resident in that neighborhood, you do feel that change. And if you can get residents that are there all year long, those are better neighbors. They're involved neighbors. Before we go too far down the road for people who aren't familiar with it, what else was in the community benefit agreement, the CBA, with uh, the union flycatcher development? For a neighborhood, traffic is a big deal. Street traffic, cars are a big deal. And we wanted to really hold the the leaders accountable for really building a transit-oriented district. And we don't have a, a really good definition for what that meant. So the community benefits agreement allowed us to actually put a line in the sand and say, well, for this development, what that means is there's a discount of 50% for any streetcar pass. And that really helps us to put our um, money where our mouth is and in, in welcoming people to that community and saying, please don't bring your car. Here's a better way to travel in the area. Another one for us was rent control for the merchants and small spaces on the bottom floor. And the um, coalition will actually be helping oversee ensuring that local businesses have the priority moving into that space. Some people would say in a negotiation, you have to have some kind of leverage. How do you negotiate with a developer as just a neighborhood association? Maybe just a neighborhood association is a really bad way to phrase it, but what's in it for the developer to to listen to you all? So our neighborhood comes from a place of great visibility and great privilege, and we really wanted to take the opportunity to enhance and and build upon the existing conversation. What happens in the 4th Avenue district doesn't only affect West University, it affects Iron Horse and Dunbar Springs and even Feldman across the street. And so having a coordinated conversation about what we wanted for the future was really important and having one that involved the community at large and not only a neighborhood association and a developer. We view the community benefits agreement as a tool that can be used by our representatives. They aren't able to put everything in a GPLET negotiation, whereas the CBA can be more about the relationships that you're building, um, partnerships that are built. We really want to emphasize the communication part. It also creates an accountability. So we really truly believe that Anytime our um, elected officials are providing incentives to developers, those incentives should have accountability. And there's a lot of conversation about how to do that. And we are happy to be the group that provides some tools and provides some teeth so that it's not just about the money. It's about the relationship long term in the community. The coalition and the neighborhood association are pushing for another community benefit agreement with the development that's going in place uh, a little further now down fourth avenue uh where maloney's which a lot of college students know um what are you hoping to achieve with that one we really hope to set a precedent that anytime an incentive or a exception is made a, a cba is built with the community for this next one we are grateful that parking has been a part of the conversation A huge concern for us is um, looking forward. Many of these developments will be under construction at the same time. And so communication is going to be really important. And our coalition can help schedule things in a way and coordinate communication amongst that district so that we are moving, we are making it safe as all of those intersections are being impacted. And also we should have a conversation about the impact that that's going to have on our economy 
you know, at the benefit of a, of the developers who are going to benefit from this land and, and having these spaces. Um, in the short term, it's really going to impact our Fourth Avenue merchants and the core of our community as that district is under construction. And so how are we going to support them and, and how how can we build some protections in place for them? The city council offers, uh, as you've referred to it, GPLET, which is a tax incentive for businesses. But what's the role of the city council, or is there a role, or should there be a role, for the city council in making sure that new developments blend in as much as possible with local communities? I'd love to see them play a bigger role and a bigger role, but we're all new to this. The coalition is only a year old, and so we're educating ourselves and our community about how best to use this tool. But I think that the way that they can advocate for this is anytime they are playing with our tax dollars, which really impact the future economic opportunities for um, you know, my niece and nephew, who are, are four and six now, they have a responsibility to um, bring the deals out of the back room and make make it available to as many people as possible. And the coalition provides that tool. We are happy to do the heavy lifting and the community organizing on surveys. What is the community wanting on needs and assets in those regions? But we also um, need our leaders to create a space for us to make those negotiations. And that's what's so beautiful about something like a GPLET they can say to a developer, we we will offer you these incentives if you are able to show us that what you're developing is going to be good for the community. And we can provide that accountability tool. Should the city limit the number of developments in an area like historic Fourth Avenue or West University? Um, I think that answer will vary depending on who you ask. And I'm representing a lot of people, so I won't share my personal opinion. I know that there is a theory that says um, infill is best where we have the most infrastructure. And I think there's merit to that. But I do want to say that a lot of the infrastructure in our downtown space really was built before cars. And so it would be great to see the future development of that space being approached from that perspective, that we don't really need to be bringing more vehicles into that area. All right. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us. My pleasure. That was Lisette DeMars with the West University Neighborhood Association and Historic Fourth Avenue Coalition. Most of today's show has focused on private student housing developments around the University of Arizona campus, but many students spend at least one year living in university housing. We asked Dana Robbins-Murray with the UA Housing and Residential Life if the university has enough student housing. She says university housing was nearly full this year, but the addition of 1,000 beds at the new Honors Village dorm let her office be more creative with the extra inventory. So what we did is we created more singles in our inventory, which we knew students wanted, but we at previous uh, years had not had enough inventory to do that. So we reduced the number of beds we offered this year, and that's why we were able to fill. We have seen a rise in these big high-rises, the private uh, student housing around campus. Is that making a difference? Is it making your job easier dealing with capacity, or is it just part of the equation? I think the latter. I think it's part of the equation. What we're seeing is some students after living on campus their freshman year are moving off to some of those high-rise privately owned apartments right near campus. Some students do stay on, but it is a competition for them to go over there. What we've done in the last year is we really are trying to encourage students to stay on campus for a second year. So what we've done is we've done a lot of surveying, asking them, 
what do you want to stay on campus? And the things that we heard were single rooms, which we just touched upon that uh, more of them want their private space. They want more kitchen access. They want bigger beds, the full-size beds, versus the twin XL that you see in most of our dorm rooms. So what we did is we started looking at our inventory and figuring out how we can modify it to attract these second-year students. So we did that this year by taking one of our buildings in one of our dorms, adding another kitchen to it. We made more singles. We put some full-size beds in the single rooms. And we actually filled this building really quick. We're really excited. And students still are going to want to go to the high-rises. They offer a lot more amenities than we do, but they don't offer the support we have. With the high-rises, they've only popped up in the last few years. Did you see a bigger move off campus after that first year, or is it about the same? Really, for us, it hasn't changed our numbers. What we hear is it's affected those apartment complexes that were further from campus. So their occupancy is lower because students are trying to stay closer to campus. So that's who it seems like it's affected. Do you hear about affordability on campus versus off campus at all? Yeah, absolutely. It's always a discussion for us internally and for students as they come in. What we do know is the majority of these uh, privately owned apartments right near campus are very high end. They're very expensive. So it does um, offer some limited accessibility for some students. One of the things we're really proud of on campus is we have different price levels in our dorms so that we offer more of a financial access for students who want to live on campus. There's options. We're actually working on a scholarship program right now to help students who are lower income to live on campus because we know students who live on campus just do so much better in school. They have about an 8% higher GPA uh, versus students who didn't live on campus their first year. They have about a 50% higher four-year graduation rate. So we see all the benefits, and I think that attributes to the support we offer and all the programming we offer in the dorms to help these students with this transition. And we talk about that, especially with incoming freshmen, live on campus at least one year. University of Arizona, like any university that's been around a long time, has older buildings and newer buildings. The, the honors dorm that just opened up for this semester is the honors dorm much more modeled after some of these high-rises with amenities versus the older dorms? All of our dorms have most of the same amenities. It's the difference of the quantity of the amenities or the newness of them. All of our dorms have rec rooms with some kind of foosball table, pool table. They all have study rooms. They all have community kitchens. Some of the newer dorms have more study rooms. Some of the newer dorms have wider, wider corridors because they're, they're designed a little bit more ergonomic and, and around a student function and student lifestyle. The new honors dorm has uh, the same thing. It has the rec space. It has pianos like our other dorms have pianos. It's just newer. It's designed well because it's newer. They think about a lot of the flow and the, and the things the students would want and need. And that's where we see some of the progress. President Robbins has talked about making university admissions more selective, yeah. increasing the, the, the academic quality of students coming in. If that shrinks the, the student body, does that help you foresee a time maybe where we have excess capacity on campus when it comes to housing? 
sure, it's really hard to tell. You know, every year is different in regards to how many students want to stay on campus, how many freshmen want to live with us. But I would say if enrollment becomes more selective, as President Robbins has talked about, what we would do is looking at encouraging more second-year students to stay, third-year students to stay living on campus. And that's what we've been starting to do is looking at what it is they want so that we can tailor our inventory to help encourage them to stay on campus. For people who may not have been in a dorm for a while, uh, what it's like to live on campus versus living off campus, maybe in some of these newer places or some of even the the older off-campus housing. One of the things we really like to promote is our support for that student who's coming in as a freshman for the transition to college. We know it's not easy. We have a new program or curriculum called Wildcat Living, and it is a full-year component program where we are helping the students to figure out how to be an adult, how to be responsible for themselves, how to respect the people around them, how to respect diversity, how to study, how to take a midterm, how to plan for things. So we're doing all that kind of support mechanism in the dorm, and you're not getting that in an apartment. The other thing that I know parents like is we have rules and policies living on campus. We have quiet hours so students can sleep and study. We don't let them throw wild parties. They're not allowed to have alcohol in the dorm unless they're of age, and that has to be behind closed doors. We expect them to create an environment that is a home for all the students. And unfortunately, sometimes in the apartments, that doesn't happen because they don't have the rules and the guidelines, so you see a different environment over there. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you very much. That was Dana Robbins-Murray, Director of Administrative Services for UA Housing and Residential Life. The construction of the Honors Village was not without controversy. Neighbors in the area complained that the university didn't consult them before plans were finalized, complaints similar to those made by residents of other areas when private high-rise apartments are put up. Residents were concerned the new housing was out of character with the neighborhood. University officials point out they changed the plans, lowering the building height and moving entrances so neighbors would be less disturbed by the noise and traffic. And that's the buzz for this week. Next week, we'll have the three Tucson mayoral candidates in for a conversation about the issues facing the city. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Meredith O'Neill produced the Salam Tucson piece. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.